On this episode of the podcast, I want to share with you an abridged version of a presentation I was asked to give at the California Sexual Assault Investigators Association's Spring Training Conference. It was held virtually this year, so it all had to be done via Zoom. But we had a great time, and I was able to share a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. I call it Broken Blue, the dangers of untreated PTSD, compassion fatigue, and vicarious trauma in first responders. And if you're not a first responder, don't allow that to hinder you from listening to this podcast. There's something in this presentation for everyone. Let's talk about it. My name's Shane Norwood. I'm a former cop with 20 years of experience. I'm also a PTSD and depression advocate and survivor. On this show, we celebrate the order and chaos in all of our lives. And as always, we dedicate each and every episode to the brave men and women out there holding that thin blue line between the order and the chaos in our society. So before we get started, I need to take this opportunity to thank the members and the board of directors of the California Sexual Assault Investigators Association for inviting me to speak at their conference. I mean, I'm, I'm so incredibly humbled that I was presented with this opportunity to share something so important. My personal story of dealing with PTSD and the aftermath of not dealing with it in a timely manner, uh, it cost me a great deal. And so if I'm able to use my story and my knowledge and my experience to help others retain their careers, retain their families, uh, keep everything that matters in their life and get the help that they need before it's too late, then I'm going to do it. And I want to give a special thanks to my friend Gina, who's a member of the board of directors who stuck her neck out for me and suggested to the other members of the board that I be given the opportunity to present. So Gina, thank you very much. I received the gift from the board that was extremely thoughtful and the letter. Uh, I'm just overwhelmed and I'm so incredibly thankful. The feedback I've received from members that were present at the conference, uh, it, it's, it's, been, it's been very substantial and it's, it's beyond my wildest expectations. All I care about is that, I, that, is that people got something out of it and hopefully I was able, able to help as many people as I possibly could. So I wanted to take this opportunity to share a segment of that presentation with my listeners because that's what this podcast is really all about. Uh, you know, we, I, I talk about in the intro that we celebrate the order and chaos in all of our lives. And it's not always going to be uh, uh, about mental health or PTSD or things of that nature. Sometimes it's just about getting through day to day. And on the extreme end of getting through day to day, we find ourselves sometimes exposed to very traumatic incidents that can have substantial impacts on our well being to the point to where it can cost someone their life if they feel that there's no way out but to take their own life. And that is so incredibly tragic and avoidable. So I want to do whatever I can in this limited media resource that I have to help those in need and to give them hope and the realization and the fact that PTSD, vicarious trauma, secondary PTSD, compassion fatigue, depression, all of these things are 100% treatable. And we're going to get into that in this presentation. So for those of you out there that don't know who I am, maybe you've tuned into this podcast for the very first time or you referred to the podcast by someone who attended the conference. Uh, my name is Shane Norwood. I began my law enforcement career at 18 years of age. I went through the Reserve Police Academy while I was a senior in high school. And I have a lot of fond memories of that experience. You know, I, I went to high school during the day. 
And then I attended the academy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings, and all day Saturday. And on one of those particular Saturdays was the date of my senior prom. And I'll never forget that some of my academy classmates, they found out about it and realized that I was going to miss my prom in order to, to attend the academy because my priority at that time was getting underway with my law enforcement career. And so they ended up going to the academy staff and I get called into the academy director's office and basically get ordered that I'm going to attend my prom. That if I showed up to the academy the night of my prom, don't bother coming back. So I, I treasure that one because that's, that's uh, one of the fondest memories I have of the academy. But just a few months after high school, I want to say maybe four months after I graduated high school, I was given an opportunity to go to work for a small police department as a reserve police officer. So I was literally five foot 11, 147 pounds soaking wet, 18 years old, incredibly immature, wearing a badge, a gun, a uniform, and a patrol car. It, I look back on it now and it's absolutely crazy, but uh, it's something that I'm really proud of. I ended up getting hired full-time. I spent 20 years as a full-time police officer. I worked patrol. I worked canine. Uh, I was a member of the SWAT team. I worked a wide variety of different investigations from uh, frauds to embezzlement. Ultimately, I became certified in child forensic interviewing and uh, worked primarily sex crimes investigations. Uh, the, the very end of my career was uh, being assigned to a local high school as a school resource officer. I consider myself a post-traumatic stress disorder and depression survivor. And the reason why I say that is because every year, more police officers take their own lives than are killed in the line of duty. And that is a staggering, unacceptable, horrific statistic to which I could have easily been a part of. Uh, I, I recall the darkest moments of my life when I hit absolute rock bottom. You know, I was, I was trying to self-medicate with alcohol to the point to where I would become so inebriated that I would get behind the wheel and have no independent recollection of how I even got behind the wheel of a car. It ultimately cost me my career. It cost me some jail time. There were a significant amount of consequences that came with that. And it was devastating. It, um, I thought it ruined my life. And what I, what I found out through a very tough process, when I finally reached out to professionals to get the help that I needed, I learned that while I lost a great deal, that I had gained a, tr a tremendous amount in the process. I had gained a sense of commitment and responsibility to help others to avoid going through what I went through. That's why, that's why I get behind this microphone. That's why I speak whenever I'm given an opportunity. I don't mind being candid and I don't mind being vulnerable. Because it's one thing to hear a clinician get up and talk about PTSD. And don't get me wrong, that's incredibly important. But I feel what's equally important is hearing the true life stories of people that hit rock bottom, how they got there, and how they recovered. And I stand before you today being a survivor, having recovered. It doesn't mean that every day is easy. Believe me, I have hard days. But I have the resources in place now to be able to deal with those hard times in a way that's healthy, that's productive, that propels me forward 
to my goals and ambitions and gives me a new mission and new purpose in life. So for that, I'm incredibly thankful. I obviously host this podcast. This podcast was, it started off as me just sharing my personal story. And if you haven't heard it yet, I would encourage you after this episode to go back to episode one. Uh, episode one is entitled Broken Blue. It is the title of the book that I'm writing. It's, it's my own personal story. And that podcast was literally me in my walk-in closet behind a microphone, just telling my story in the most candid, vulnerable way that I possibly could. It was therapeutic for me. It was actually part of my therapy. You know, sometimes they, therapists will encourage you to journal. I've always been a sound guy, a media guy. I love electronics. I love recording. So I decided that I was going to put my story out there in a podcast form for anybody to hear at any time on demand. Not caring what people may think or how they may judge. And while I'm obviously not proud of so many of the things that I did when I was at the worst state of my life, I think it would be highly irresponsible and selfish of me to not share those things with others so that they can recognize warning signs in their own lives, red flags in their own lives and intervene before it gets to the point that my life did before I finally reached out for help. And so that was the goal behind the podcast. And like I said, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about my story in this particular presentation. I did do that when I presented at, for the California Sexual Assault Investigator Association, but uh, for purposes of this podcast, when you know the, the, the full story is available in, in another episode, I would just defer you to that. So please take, take a listen to that when you get a chance. And this is going to be an abbreviated version of the course that I gave to the California Sexual Assault Investigator Association, but we are going to try to, to cover some key elements of that. And one of those is we want to define and discuss what post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary PTSD, which most people have never heard of, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. What are they? And, and how does one come to suffer from them? I want to discuss some behaviors related to those, to those conditions. One of the most common signs and symptoms that someone is suffering from that is they engage in high-risk behaviors. They self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. They have a distorted flight, fight or flight response. They, they, they have an exaggerated startle response. They, they maybe have nightmares, trouble sleeping. There's so many elements to it. And your mileage may vary. Everybody's mind processes trauma in a different way. But some of the symptoms we're going to talk about are symptoms that are the most common that people will experience when they're suffering from post-traumatic stress. I want to talk about potential warning signs, you know, recognizing them ahead of time so that you can intervene before it's too late. And we're going to talk briefly about treatments. You know, the treatments that I went through, those are really the only ones that I can speak of with any, any sense of intelligence is the things that I was personally exposed to and things that I know work because they work for me. And I do want to give this disclaimer. I am not a clinician. Uh, I, I, the, the only education I have is anecdotal personal experience with dealing with trauma, both in a healthy way and on, in a very unhealthy way. It's, an, it's, it's very important for you to seek the assistance and the guidance and the counsel of someone who is clinically qualified to be able to treat you. So this podcast in no way, shape, or form, same as my presentation that I gave uh, to the California Sexual Assault Investigators Association, I gave the same disclaimer. Nothing I, that I'm saying to you today should be a substitute for 
therapy. If anything, it should be the catalyst that leads you to pursue appropriate therapeutic measures. I like to say this at every single presentation right from the onset as well. For those of you that know my story or can kind of surmise what my story may be based on the things that I've already discussed, I don't blame post-traumatic stress disorder for any bad decisions I made in my life, for the consequences of those bad decisions, for losing my career, for my legal problems, for the, for the damage that I did to friendships, to relationships. I don't blame I don't blame PTSD for that. Now, were the symptoms of PTSD a cause of a lot of those behaviors? Sure, absolutely they were. But at the end of the day, I am responsible for my own behavior. I am responsible for seeking treatment when it's necessary. I'm responsible for knowing myself well enough to know when something's wrong and, for, and to take action when action is required. And I did none of those things. And as a result, I paid the price in so many areas of my life. So what I'm trying to do here with, with this presentation and with, with, with everything that I do through this podcast and through the foundations that I'm involved in and any opportunity that I get to speak, my goal is to prevent someone else from going through what I went through. Or better said, to prevent someone else from causing themselves to go through the things that I went through. The burden of personal accountability is not eased or excused due to a PTSD or secondary PTSD, vicarious trauma diagnosis, not in any way, shape, or form. You are still responsible for yourself. You are still responsible for your actions. And by blaming PTSD and by blaming vicarious trauma, well, it just kind of goes to show you have a long way to go, if I'm just being honest. I know that when you listen to my story, if you were to go on to, if you were to go in and listen to the, the first episode of this podcast and you were to hear all the things that I had to say, you might think that my story is, is extreme, you know, that it's on the far end of extreme, that none of the things that happened to me could ever happen to you. You would never be that stupid. You would never allow yourself to, put, to be put in that position. And that may very well be true. But I couldn't tell you how many times I told myself the same exact things. And yet I continued to progress and my rock bottom continued to get lower and lower and lower. It was almost like I was in a competition with myself to see how low I could possibly take my life. So don't deceive yourself. Don't ever say I could never be in that position. You might just prove yourself wrong. And my goal in this presentation is just to provide the very basics of clinical knowledge. Like I said, I'm not a clinician. Anything that I'm telling you about post-traumatic stress, you could find for yourself through the uh, DSM-5, through a, a Google search, through many of the foundations that are out there that provide information that give great uh, insight as to the signs and symptoms of PTSD and other trauma-related conditions. I just want to discuss them briefly so that we know what we're dealing with and we know potential symptoms to be looking out for. And throughout this presentation, all I ask you to do is be mindful and be honest, be self-aware. When you hear something that resonates, it may not be directly the type of thing that you're going through or the feeling that you may be feeling, but there will be certain parallels. 
I ask you to at least be open with yourself enough to recognize those things and say, yeah, you know what? I can relate to that. It may not be as extreme. It may be significantly more extreme, but that's no factor. That's completely irrelevant. What matters is, so we learn the red flags. We learn the potential symptoms. We learn the things to look out for so that we can take action. One of the most common myths regarding post-traumatic stress disorder is that one must personally experience trauma in order to develop PTSD. Nothing could be more false. Sure, PTSD can be, could come about based on your personal experiences with trauma, your personal exposure to trauma. You were involved in a shooting. You witnessed the death of a child. You were robbed. You were raped. And there's, there's a number of traumatic incidents that can happen to you directly. And obviously, those could cause some adverse effects. But other things we don't tend to think about are these. Witnessing a traumatic incident. You're out to dinner. And nowadays, you know, everything seems to be outdoors because of the coronavirus. So you're maybe perhaps eating outside at a restaurant. There's a main street that's just, just outside the restaurant and you witness a horrific car crash. Someone gets ejected. Maybe it's a, an extremely gory scene. Well, that could be just as traumatic as being involved in the accident yourself. Learning that a close friend or relative has been involved in a traumatic incident. I remember when I first heard that, I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm going to get PTSD because somebody I know went through something traumatic until I was given the following examples. Your wife is raped. You send your son off to a trip, maybe a school function, and there's a bus crash, and your son is critically injured or killed. Yeah, that could produce the same symptoms as personal exposure to trauma, as you being involved in the accident yourself. And this is why self-awareness is so important. We are responsible to ourselves, our loved ones, our coworkers, and those we serve in whatever capacity that may be. And for those of you out there that aren't in law enforcement or you're not a first responder, just think about whatever you do for a living, you are in service of someone. Whether you work at a restaurant, a home improvement store, a law office, retail, Whatever you do, in some way, shape, or form, you serve others. And we're responsible to ourselves, our loved ones, our coworkers, and those that we serve and those that we care about to be self-aware, to be honest with ourselves about everything within ourselves. And here's the most important part. We don't have to know what's wrong. We just have to know that something is wrong. We don't need to identify what it is. We don't have to know that it's PTSD, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, secondary PTSD. We don't even have to know what any of that stuff means. All we have to know is something is not right. Who knows you better than you? But it takes a great deal of honesty. You know, it takes a great deal of bravery to be able to say, yeah, something isn't right and I want to get this fixed before it gets out of hand. Taking that first step is the most crucial and the most difficult one. You know, I talked about police suicides. 228 police officers alone in 2019 killed themselves. That's double those that were killed in the line of duty. And Lexapol, an organization that uh, provides training to law enforcement, says that 
It's estimated that between 7 and 35% of law enforcement officers experience compassion fatigue and or PTSD symptoms. That's not saying that between 7 and 35% are diagnosable as suffering from PTSD. All it's saying is that they suffer compassion fatigue and PTSD symptoms, one or multiple. And there's all these requirements that clinicians go by that if you, you need to have this symptom for this period of time and this combination of symptoms to get an actual diagnosis. But that's why I'm telling you, you don't have to know what's wrong. You don't have to go through the book and figure it all out before you go and seek help. And, and this statistic is actually very startling when you figure that seven, between seven and 35%, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that they know for sure that 7%, maybe through self-reporting or other types of studies, we know that 7% suffer from PTSD symptoms. But based on that information, the estimation is that upwards of 35% may actually suffer from those symptoms. Based on my own experience over 20 years in law enforcement, I can tell you, getting to know police officers very intimately and some of them being my closest friends, that I would wager that that 35% number is probably much more accurate. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. PTSD, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, secondary PTSD, every single one of these things is 100% treatable. 100% treatable. Now, it requires some action on your part. It's not as simple as going to the doctor and getting a pill and making everything all better. And that's probably why, that's one of the big reasons why so many police officers, first responders, and the general public don't deal with their symptoms. Because it forces you to have to face them. But the best part about it is you don't have to face them alone. And you learn how to face them in a healthy manner. You obtain resources that help you get through those times so that your mind can process the information. So that your mind can deal with the trauma in a healthy manner by healthy means. It's not something we could ever hope to do for ourselves, by ourselves. Yet so many try, including myself, with very adverse consequences. If detected and treated early, negative consequences of behaviors associated with PTSD can, avo can be avoided. You can save your, your marriage. You can save your family. You can save your career. You can save yourself from legal issues, from criminal issues. You can save yourself from physical harm. You can save your life. But you can't wait until it's too late to do so. And this is the thing that motivates me to continue this podcast, to continue speaking. Whenever I've invited, wherever I'm invited somewhere I, and, and asked to speak on this topic, I never turn it down. And that's because for every single person that self-reports, it empowers others to do the same. If I'm willing to step forward and say, I need help. If I can help someone avoid going through the things that I went through and taking the action quickly. And the reason why they're willing to do so is because they've heard countless stories of others that have done it before them. Then it's worth it. And so know this, by coming forward, by seeking help, you empower others to do the same. But how about this? <laughs> we have all heard it. You just need to suck it up. 
Yeah, I'd say there's some truth to that. Now, before all the clinicians kill me for saying that, let me qualify what I mean. There are times in life when you just need to suck it up. But suffering from trauma, the symptoms of PTSD and vicarious trauma, secondary PTSD, compassion fatigue, that's not the time. Because what happens is your mind normally takes that sense of resiliency that comes with the suck it up mentality and perverts it. Sucking it up is for things like the police academy, a master's program, things in life that will lead you to greater opportunities, but really suck in the moment. In the army, they say, embrace the suck. There's a lot of times when that is the appropriate course of action. Working that 12-hour shift and being forced to stay over for 16. Sometimes you got to suck it up. Having nightmares. Reoccurring horrific thoughts. Engaging in high-risk behaviors. Feeling hopeless. Isolating. Self-medicating. That's not the time to suck it up. But your mind's going to tell you that we got this. You don't need to shrink. You're not crazy. You just got problems. Everybody's got problems. What, you think your problems are so bad that it requires a shrink? What about this person over here? This person's got a much harder life than you do. What are you bitching about? Suck it up. And you know what? Maybe all of that is true. But it doesn't take away from the fact that you are suffering. You are not able to process whatever traumatic incident occurred that led you to have these feelings. And so that is not the time to suck it up. That is the time to seek support from those who are capable of supporting you and leading you through the process so that you can feel better, so that you can process it in a healthy manner. And so you can go on with your life and be productive and be successful. But don't listen to the lie. When your mind perverts resiliency and says, you don't need help. Your life isn't all that bad. Suck it up and deal with it. I want to talk about some common symptoms of PTSD. I told you I would do this because I want you to be able to just take a listen to these and see if you can relate to them in any way, shape, or form. If you can, it doesn't mean you have PTSD. If you can, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It means you're human. It means that you've been through some stuff in your life that has caused you great pain. It means that you have experienced things in your life that have been traumatic that you just need a little bit of help getting through. And there is no shame in that. The first set of symptoms is the intrusion symptoms. The traumatic event is persistently re-experienced in the following ways. Unwanted, upsetting memories. I hear this a lot when, when, I, when I mention this particular symptom and people say, well, why would you ever want upsetting memories? Well, there's times in life when upsetting memories are very beneficial. Oftentimes, upsetting memories can teach us a lesson or remind us of a lesson that was taught to us. Maybe you lost a relationship because you were a jerk. Maybe you lost a job because you didn't perform at an adequate level. And you look back on those memories and it brings back a little bit of pain, but it also reminds you of the lesson learned. And why is that beneficial? 
Well, because it alters behavior. Hopefully we recall those unpleasant memories and we say, I don't want to feel that ever again. I'm going to alter my behavior the next go around. But what about the times when it's completely unwanted, when we don't voluntarily recall those unpleasant memories? People who suffer from PTSD, many times with no provocation, recall memories of their trauma and they can be very disturbing. And because the recall is not voluntary, it can be destructive. Nightmares. I know this one very, very well. So many people that have shared their stories with me have also echoed the fact that they suffered from tremendous, horrific, terrifying nightmares. And the worst stages of my symptoms and as I was approaching the most bitter rock bottom moment I'd ever faced in my life, I was having nightly nightmares involving my son being subjected to the same abuses of the children that I had interviewed earlier that day, of him being sodomized, of him being forced to give a suspect oral sex and me not being able to do anything about it. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the presentation, but oftentimes the sources of our trauma are not things that happen directly to us, but it's things we could not prevent from happening to innocent ones. And in my case, I was haunted by the children that I interviewed, by their stories, by what I knew it would do to them for the rest of their lives. And I got hung up on this unrealistic self-expectation that I should have been there to do something about it before they were subjected to this abuse. In a sane state of mind, I can look at that in a rational way and say, there's no way that I could have been there. But I was providing that child with some closure and justice through my talents and my abilities as, a, as an investigator, but I didn't view it that way. My mind perverted what should have been something very honorable and made it something that I blamed myself for. Flashbacks. Many of our veterans, law enforcement officers involved in shootings, they have these flashbacks of the incident. People that were involved in plane crashes, automobile accidents. People that were raped, that were abused as children, they'll have flashbacks to the incident and feel as if they were there reliving it all over again. Emotional distress after exposure to traumatic reminders. Something happens in your life that reminds you of the traumatic incident and you feel the same emotions that you felt as you're in the midst of the trauma. Physical reactivity after exposure to traumatic reminders. I've, I've heard so many stories of people that were involved in horrific incidents like a rape or a car accident and certain reminders actually bring back the physical pain that they felt during the trauma. And that just goes to show how powerful the mind is. When the mind can send signals to cause you to feel pain as if you were being violated once again, as if you were tumbling down that hill in your vehicle all over again. And that's why it's so incredibly important that we do not take lightly what our mind is capable of. And as soon as we sense that something may be off, 
as soon as we recognize even one of these symptoms in our lives, that we at least are open to seeking help from someone who can guide us through. The next set of symptoms, avoidance. Avoidance of trauma-related stimuli after the trauma in the following ways. Avoiding related thoughts and feelings, guilt, shame, sadness, fear. I avoided these feelings at all costs. And the way that I did so was getting myself completely obliterated with alcohol. Something that I, could jo- I, that I, that I enjoyed very responsibly with my friends, socially. I knew that there was no stigma attached to it. And I knew that if I enjoyed it to excess, that it would be effective in ridding me of all of these feelings. Unfortunately, what it brought with it was nothing but pain and suffering that my original symptoms that I was trying to get rid of would pale in comparison to. Trauma-related external reminders, places, events, involved persons, related conversations, etc. Going to a place where the event took place or a place that reminds you of where the traumatic event took place. Maybe driving down the same street where the accident occurred. Maybe driving by the same house where the rape occurred. Running into somebody who reminds you of your assailant or someone who was there and witnessed it and did nothing. Negative alterations in cognitions and mood. The inability to recall key features of trauma. This is incredibly important to you investigators out there. This is something that I learned way too late in my career. Oftentimes, as an investigator, you are dealing with people who who have gone through a very traumatic event. Oftentimes, it is their first real traumatic event that they've ever experienced in their life. It has a profound impact on their ability to recall key information. You find this a lot with officers who are involved in shootings. And a lot of times investigators mistake this as the officer purposely withholding information. When in actuality, the trauma is trying to protect the officer, is trying to protect the victim and renders, it, renders them an unable to recall key events. And as I said, this could be confused with mistaking them for not being forthcoming. Give them a couple of days, two or three days a week, go back and re-interview them. And instead of just viewing it as they're just filling in the gaps to get you off their back, perhaps you take it as probable, credible information that you can confirm or eliminate later on down the line with the understanding that a lot of people will recall significant details after, after their mind has had a few days to process the traumatic event. Overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world, blaming yourself, hating yourself, thinking you're worthless, thinking everybody in the world is out to get you, that everybody's evil. No one can be trusted. Exaggerated blame of self or others for causing the trauma. Why did I ever allow my wife to go to the grocery store? She never would have got raped if I had not, if I had just gone myself. How could I ever allow my son to go on that school trip? If I hadn't let him go, he never would have been on that bus that crashed. If I only would have got to my partner a little sooner, I could have engaged that suspect and killed him before he killed my partner. If I had only learned that that child was in trouble, I could have intervened and got that child in a safe place before that child 
was brutally sodomized. These are all unrealistic. They're tricks that our mind plays on us so that we falsely blame ourselves for situations that we had no control over the outcome. Negative affect, emotional numbing, simply not being able to feel things, not being able to feel feel emotions that are common, healthy emotions that are vital to our day-to-day lives. Decreased interest in activities. This is a really big one. It's one of the symptoms of depression as well. Things that once gave you joy, things that once gave you happiness and fulfillment, you no longer want to participate in. You no longer have any interest in doing them. The reasons for this can be rooted in self-blame. They could be rooted in emotional numbness where you just simply don't get the pleasure from that activity that you once did. Feeling isolated or purposely isolating. Feeling isolated that no one wants to hang out with you. No one wants to be around you. Isolating yourself by saying, I'm better off by myself. Handling this alone. I can't be a burden to others. I need to suck this up and take care of it myself. Difficulty experiencing positive affect, happiness, joy, interest, desire for interpersonal affiliation, intimacy. One of the big reasons why friendships and families fall apart. One of the first things that that gets attacked when we can't process trauma or when we don't reach out for help to get us through the traumatic event, we neglect others. Those are the most important to us. Those that would never leave our side, we give them no choice. We make their lives miserable. We don't engage in healthy day-to-day interactions that make families the most wonderful thing that, that we could ever experience in life or the intimacy between partners. The next set of symptoms, alterations in arousal and reactivity. Trauma-related arousal or reactivity that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. Irritability or aggression. Ties into what we were just saying. No one wants to be around you because you're just an asshole. Everything irritates you. Everything aggravates you. Maybe you were that guy or that girl that was the life of the party, the class clown, the one that everybody liked to be around. Well, it's even worse for you then. Because when you make this drastic change and start showing irritability and aggression and agitation, people really notice. And it drives people away, which further isolates you. Riskier or destructive behavior, DUI, excessive drinking, gambling, multiple sex partners, unprotected sex, hypervigilance, constantly thinking someone's going to be jumping out of a corner to attack you, always looking over your shoulder, not in the healthy way where you're aware of your surroundings, but hypervigilant, paranoid, heightened startle reaction. You see this a lot with our veterans and with our law enforcement officers that were involved in combat or shootings. Even the slightest noise could cause this heightened startle reaction. Difficulty concentrating. I know that I really struggled with this. I could not focus. I could not get through the day. I could not do 
simple tasks that required even the minimal amount of concentration, let alone advanced tasks. And difficulty sleeping. And that could be falling asleep, staying asleep, nightmares, troubling thoughts, racing thoughts. That was a huge one for me. My mind would not shut down. And as a result, I could not go to sleep, no matter how bad I wanted to, no matter how exhausted I was. So how did I fix it? I drank myself to sleep and it worked. But there were much healthier ways that I could have got help. But hey, got to suck it up and figure it out, right? Vicarious trauma. Secondary PTSD, compassion fatigue. They all tend to be interwoven. Some symptoms are specific to vicarious trauma and they are Experiencing lingering feelings of anger, rage, and sadness about the patient or victim's victimization. You're obsessed. You put yourself in their shoes. You, you want revenge, justice, and not the healthy kind, the kind that you obsess about, the kind that you can never stop thinking about. Becoming overly involved emotionally with a patient or victim. Getting a little too close for comfort. Bordering on inappropriate. Sympathizing with them so much that it compromises your professional duty. Experiencing bystander guilt, shame, feelings of self-doubt. We talked about this. The officer who didn't get there in time to save his partner. The parent who gave permission for their child to go on a trip only to have them be killed in an accident. And along with this is survivor's guilt. Why did my son have to die? Why did my wife have to die? I would have gladly given my life to save theirs. Being preoccupied with thoughts of patients and victims outside of the work situation. Can't leave it at work. Can't leave it in the locker room. Take it home. What does that do? It impacts your family. It impacts your personal relationships. All you do is think about work. All you do is think about your victims, your patients. Work-life balance is completely out the window. Over-identification with a patient. Maybe you went through something similar. Maybe your victim was a victim of domestic violence just like you were. Maybe the circumstances were eerily similar. We over-identify and we lose our professional edge. Loss of hope, pessimism, cynicism. We hate our department. We hate the hospital we, we work for. We hate the law office we work for. We hate men. We hate women. We vow to never be involved in another relationship again. We maybe express racism. And these are just very real emotions, as taboo as they may be to talk about. But when you're angry, when you're overly involved, when you're obsessed, they can bring out the very worst in us. Distancing, numbing, detachment, cutting patients or victims off, staying busy with tasks that are not relevant to your main duty. Finding something else to do so you don't have to deal with the thing that brings you so much pain. Avoiding listening to clients or victims' story of traumatic experiences because it just might remind you of your own. You're just burnt out. You're tired of it. You start having feelings like, 
Why can't these people take care of themselves? Why am I always dealing with people that their lives are a complete shit show? What is wrong with these people? You lose sight of everything that you got into your line of work for. Difficulty in maintaining professional boundaries with a patient or victim, such as overextending yourself, trying to do more that, that, than your role is required, or even worse, becoming romantically involved. There's countless examples of it happening. You want to protect this person. You want to save this person. You feel like they deserve better. And you do something that only makes the situation exponentially worse for everyone involved. What are some warning signs of vicarious trauma, PTSD, secondary PTSD? Increased use of alcohol or drugs, self-medication. I don't need therapy. I just need a stiff drink. And can I be clear? I don't see anything wrong with the responsible use of alcohol. That's for each individual to decide for themselves. What I'm saying is, when it becomes something you use in order to deal with things that you should be able to deal with in a healthy manner, it's worth giving a little bit more attention to. Engagement in high-risk behavior. That's why we see so many DUIs in law enforcement. You know that 85% of police officers that are arrested are arrested for DUI. Nurses lose their privilege to practice medicine for a DUI. Pilots can lose their pilot's license for a DUI. Yet alcohol has almost no stigma attached until you decide to get behind the wheel. It's an interesting dynamic. Anger and irritability at home and at work. We talked about this one already, but you're just pissed off all the time. You're, you're, you're not patient with your kids anymore. Every little thing that your husband or wife does is drives you up the wall. Is this normal? Chances are it's not. And you might not be able to put your finger on what's causing it, which is why you need someone else to help you work through it. Just up to you whether or not it's worth the investment in your time and the energy to do whatever it takes to get back to your best self. Consuming high trauma media is entertainment. You see this a lot. Cops that do nothing but watch cops. Nurses that watch ER and whatever other shows are out there. You can't get enough of it. You live, breathe, and sleep. High speed, low drag, traumatic incidents. It's what you live for. It's what could kill you. Avoiding colleagues or staff gatherings and other social events. Isolating. We talked about that. you're normally the social butterfly that really likes to go out and spend time with your friends and coworkers, and all of a sudden you start realizing, I'd rather just stay at home with a glass of wine and watch some TV by myself. I'm not saying that that's not healthy every once in a while, but when it becomes the norm, then we go back to our need for self-examination and honesty. Why are we really doing what we're doing? Why is there this change in behavior? Imposter syndrome, feeling unskilled at your job. I don't deserve this job. Any other doctor would have never let this patient die. Any other cop could have figured this out and prevented this person from dying. These are lies that our mind tells ourselves. 
problems in personal relationships, whether that be romantic relationships, friendships. It's usually due to all the above things that we talked about, irritability, anger, isolation. You're impossible to be around and no one wants to be around you anymore. Difficulty with, with sex and intimacy. And now your partner is thinking it's something that they did. That you don't want them anymore. And maybe you even give the classic line, it's not you, it's me. Well, then what are you doing about you? Compromising care or concern for victims or clients' patients. Just not caring anymore. Cynicism, anger, failure to nurture and develop non-work-related aspects of life. Not having that work-life balance, not having a mission in life that if tomorrow you were to lose your law enforcement job, if tomorrow you were to get injured and not be able to go back to work, if tomorrow something catastrophic were to happen and you could no longer perform your duties as a nurse, what would you do? What would give you purpose? What would make you feel fulfilled and satisfied? Those are things that we need to think about long before they actually happen. And we need to make sure that we have things in place in our lives that provide us an adequate substitute for the profession we may identify with. Sometimes that is much easier said than done. I want to talk briefly about some of the treatment that I went through. Cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. When I finally decided that I would see a therapist, and by this time, my life had already fallen apart. I had lost my law enforcement career. I was facing significant legal consequences. I had backed myself into such a corner that I almost went to therapy just because everyone else expected me to. But that's what got me through the door. I met a therapist who was absolutely incredible. She quickly got to know me, established rapport, and was able to give me a diagnosis after a couple of months. I was diagnosed with the most severe case of PTSD in the books, as well as depression and alcohol use disorder. She was very honest with me. You've got a long way to go. It's up to you. I can treat you. We can get you through this and you can be better than who you were before, but you got to do the work. Roger that. So we got to work. After about a year of cognitive behavioral therapy, like I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint. But after about a year, my therapist felt that I was finally ready to undergo EMDR. And the reason why it took so long is because EMDR many times can bring back the traumatic memories and you can suffer a lot of the same symptoms as you once experienced, sometimes to an even more severe level. That's why it's so incredibly important that through cognitive behavioral therapy, you're given and mastered the resources that you need to be able to work through those tough times as your mind processes the trauma. Now, I'll be honest with you. When she first explained to me what EMDR was, I thought it was a bunch of bullshit. That's the common response. When you hear that 
they're going to replicate REM sleep and stimulation to cause your mind to process trauma that it can't process on its own. Well, it sounds like a bunch of BS. But I was already at a point in my life where I had come so far that I was willing to try anything with an open mind. And so I did. And it changed my life. It, it saved my life. The only real negative that I took away from EMDR was a temporary feeling of regret that I hadn't done it sooner because had I, I would have been able to return back to my law enforcement career a much better cop than I was prior. But that wasn't an option. And fortunately, I had her support and I had her in my ear telling me, you don't have control over what's already behind you. Take this to be a better person going forward and use all of these negatives in life and all the consequences of untreated PTSD to help others. That can be your new mission and that is the mission I've undertaken. I hope this presentation has been eye-opening, encouraging. Maybe you learned something from it and maybe you will take just one thing that you've heard and it may drive you to action. Maybe you'll share it with somebody that you think may benefit from hearing it. And I just want to leave you with these final thoughts that you and you alone are responsible for recognizing the warning signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. No matter if that's a result of PTSD or just symptoms thereof, secondary PTSD, vicarious trauma, etc. You and only you are responsible for recognizing those warning signs. You don't have to be directly exposed to trauma to suffer from the impacts of traumatic stress. Unrelenting self-examination and honesty is the key to taking this for the first steps to getting treatment and to ensuring that you are successful in treatment. Because the temptation will be after about a month or two of treatment that I don't need to go back. I'm good now. Thank you, therapist, but, you know, I appreciate everything you've done for me, but I'm good. And I can't speak for you in your circumstances, but I would wager a significant amount of money that that is a lie. Your mind is uncomfortable and it's tired of having to deal with the things that it knows it has to deal with. And it can get a little bit of relief if it can talk you into not going back to therapy. Don't let your mind deceive you. It loves to do that. Never, ever, ever be without a mission. If you eat, breathe, sleep your profession, that could result in a very tragic outcome. Because if the day comes where that is suddenly stripped from you, you'll feel lost, without purpose, without an identity. So find something else that you're passionate about. Find a new mission. Find something that if you were to lose the thing that you love to do in life, that you could carry on and be healthy and strong mentally, physically, emotionally. Don't be like me and wait until everything was gone before I attempted to find something that would give me some type of sense of purpose. That is definitely the hard way to approach it. If there's anything that I can do for you, 
reach out to me. You can find me on social media. Well, my personal Instagram is at Shane underscore A underscore Norwood. The podcast has its own account at Order and Chaos Podcast. You can send me a direct message to either one of those accounts. I'm the only one that sees those messages. So you can feel confident sharing anything that you feel comfortable sharing. If there's anything I can do for you, whether that's finding resources, a therapist in your area, maybe just having somebody to, to bounce some things off of, I'm more than happy to do that. That's what I'm here for now. That is my new mission. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Order in Chaos with Shane Norwood. Make sure you type the whole thing in. I think that's the only way that it pops up. And if you have not already subscribed to the podcast through whatever service that you utilize on Apple Podcasts, it's really easy. You just hit that subscribe button. You'll never miss an episode. You can do the same on Spotify by hitting follow. I believe there's also a way to do it on iHeartRadio and many other podcast platforms. Once again, I want to thank the board and the membership of the California Sexual Assault Investigators Association for giving me the opportunity to present at your conference and for the overwhelming support and encouragement that I received as a result of that presentation. And for all of you, my listeners, thank you so very much for your support. Until next time, this is Order in Chaos. I'm Shane Norwood. We'll talk to you soon.